This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, DPE reform takes shape. And 300 schools are about to begin using the AOPA high school STEM curriculum. Finally, maybe soon, we'll see some NOTAM changes. And GA pilots are celebrating unleaded fuel at a California airport. Finally, David, we're going to talk about a close encounter between a 172 and a drone. I want to hear more about that. Ian, are you ready to do some hangar talk? Let's do it. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week. Patrick Carter from N-Flight Cam. I'm happy to say I finally did some work. I did the interview with Patrick that we'll get to in a little bit. It's for a story <laughs> I did for Pilot about action cams. Story action, about action cams. cams. Yes, and how to get into it. N-Flight Cam, you know Patrick, really cool company, great guy. And he had a lot of really good tips, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing more about the tips. I did meet Patrick a couple of years ago at AirVenture, and I know he's a bona fide pilot, an airline mm-hmm. pilot, and a backcountry aficionado. Yeah, so he'll talk about that and and how we got into the business. Before we get to the news, let's chat real quick, give a shout out to the Aviator Showcase. This is what has taken the place of Flines this year for AOPA amid the pandemic. The next one coming up in Fort Worth, Texas. Fort Worth, Texas, October 1st. Now there is a a minimal fee to be there to join in. You just pay your 20 bucks and we'll see you there in Fort Worth. And by the time you hear this podcast, we'll already have completed one in Manassas, Virginia this weekend. Yeah, so Fort Worth, it's a one-day event, and similar to fly-ins in that there's going to be exhibitors and a couple of seminars, but really it's going to be focused on buying. We want to, you know, folks who are interested coming in, maybe trying on different headsets or seeing GPS units or whatever the case may be, you come, talk to the exhibitors, airplanes, static display, and yeah, chance to get hands-on in, in a smaller crowd than maybe a big show like Oshkosh. See, touch, feel, and buy. Let's do it. There you go. Okay. Hey, uh, let's get to the news. First, we want to talk about the DPE system reforms. We've mentioned this, I think, on the show in the past. If you've taken a check ride lately, you know the pain that is the DPE system with the FAA. All over the country, people are seeing shortages, prices are going up, 
access is really hard. It's, it's tough to know, can a DPE do a test? Can they not, if they're even available? So AOPA has been involved with working groups, industry working groups, to try and, and make some good changes to that system. One of the interesting changes that the group has been working on and will implement is a locator that effectively helps you match a DPE to the region or the city that you are living in so that you could reach out and schedule your check ride. I think this is a great thing and it was it would be super helpful to folks like me as we approach our instrument check ride, which is still a few months down the road for me. Okay, cool. Um so the the locator, I mean, there is one now, but it's not updated very often. It's kind of hard to use. And so it, it may seem like a small thing, but part of the problem with the DPE system right now is that some areas have uh, plenty of DPEs and other areas have none. And so this is hopefully going to, I think, you know, level the playing field a little bit and, and, and provide access for those people that don't have any. And then also choice is a big thing. I mean, you know, Usually it's like you go into the flight school, you work with the instructor, the instructor says you're going to go with this DPE and you have no choice, but but really the student should drive that process. I agree. And, and in my case, particularly when I got my private pilot certificate in Georgia, I flew to Chattanooga, Tennessee from Atlanta. And that was because that, that particular DPE had a good reputation, although there were others on the field at the Cap Peachtree Airport. I chose to go to Tennessee. And I think that other pilots will, you know, should have that same choice. And like you said, go for it. You know, find out who, who you're going to work with, who's going to be good, and really maybe who you can learn something from. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Hey, moving on. We haven't talked about this in a while. AOPA STEM curriculum. This is science, technology, engineering, and math, something I know, David, you're passionate about. AOPA, as we know, has developed a curriculum for use in high schools to try and increase awareness of aviation, bring a STEM pathway to students, and it's it's been really successful, and it's growing. It has been successful, Ian, and talk about growing. It grew from 200 schools in 36 states and 8,000 students last year to 300 educational institutions in 44 states for the 21-22 school year. That's really cool. One thing that I think is a standout for this program, besides the fact that it is fun, and I have participated in some of the classes uh, and, and photographed some of the hands-on, we don't call them experiments, we call it, you know, some, some hands-on learning, if you will. But the cool thing to me is that the percentage of females is 20%. Yeah. And I th think that that's being way more inclusive, getting more people involved in aviation. Yeah. And the, uh, persons of color are up to 45%. So this is opening the horizons of aviation to a lot of underserved folks right now. And we want to diversify that population. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is great. I mean, we, you know, there are aviation charter high schools. We know if you have awareness of aviation and, and the resources, you can go and, and get a really immersive aviation experience in high school. But the, the intent of the curriculum is to, is to provide that to a wider group of students. And, and obviously, we can see that's happening. You know, I think half the schools, they would qualify as mid or, or high poverty schools. You know, we're seeing it maybe in, in inner cities where you wouldn't have seen even aviation before. So it's very cool. And I want to say, you know, the curriculum is not you know, and I think, geez, thinking back to physics, they might have talked about lift, right, to a little bit to talk about pressure. This is not a lesson in aviation. I mean, this is no. an integrative curriculum. And it's, and it's hands-on, and I can't stress it how, enough how fun it is. 
I mean, students make a hot air balloon out of paper mache. They're mm. ma- they're making rocket engines. You know how we made volcanoes in science class. Well, it's like that uh, every day, just about. And but now there are good. There are also interesting written lessons as well. You know, we learn a little bit about first flight. And there's a bit of a discrepancy who made the first flight, whether it was our, our Wright brothers or other folks. And it's really neat to, to go back and dive into some of that history. But I can, I can tell you for sure, Ian, that this is a fun class. And the cool part is that it does bring aviation to groups who would not have considered an aviation career had, had, had a family member not urged them on. Yeah, absolutely. So that is uh, part of the You Can Fly program. So the curriculum was developed with donations, which I think is cool. That's, you know, people who are supporting the future of aviation. And really, this can be in any school. So it's like if you have a passion for this and you want to help locally, you can work with the school and, and you know, be a champion for that and, and maybe get it in into your own local school. And one other thing, there is no charge for that mm. program. So get your school administrators on board and uh, get the local school board to buy into this. And I think that you'll find that there will be some fun lessons to learn yeah. in aviation. Absolutely. Hey, moving on, NOTAMs. David, do you, do you hate NOTAMs as much as I hate NOTAMs? I hate NOTAMs. I do, Ian, and here's the thing that really gets to me. I mean, I live and in, in work in the Washington, D.C. area in the CIFRA, and I mean, I've been seeing since like 2003 or whenever it was, 2002, this, you know, all the same NOTAMs about flying around D.C. and, and you can't do this, you can't do that. But, and I, honestly, my eyes gloss over when I see that very first page when I'm checking for flight. Yeah, it's all, it's all like it's written by, you know, an old angry guy because it's all in caps. It's all in code. You know, it's, it's in a language nobody actually speaks. It's hard to find. And you're right. You know, you see the same thing over and over again. It's like, okay, you, you sort of learn to ignore it. So the industry has been trying for decades to try and modernize the NOTAM system, and, and we are getting there little by little. Well, well the, some of the improvements we're going to start to see, Ian, are going to be graphically, you know, construed. And I think this will help because I, there's, there's nothing that helps me more than a visual picture of something. Mm-hmm. Looking at a diagram, that really helps me a lot. Maybe the, the, the random NOTAMs might go away too or, or at least be organized in a better fashion because, honestly, you know, the onus is on us as pilots to absorb every possible detail, all information about a potential flight. But when you're seeing the same five paragraphs at the bottom of the first page of four flight every time I make, even if I want to go 30 miles away, I'm seeing the same notums. You know, it just doesn't change. And we as pilots sometimes tend to ignore that. And that is not what we need to be doing. We need to be paying attention, not ignoring. That's exactly right. So this is, you know, we're kind of at the well, I say we've been working on it for decades, and that's true. But the, the current formal process is expected to end by 2024, which will be fully upgraded in line with ICAO standards. You know, currently, you mentioned a couple of changes. They're going to see graphic construction notums, which is, I think, good. A decrease in the number of permanent ones because they'll be charted. To your point about, you know, the CIFRA, it's already charted. And this is an industry-wide effort. I mean, AOPA recently met with NBAA's air traffic uh, experts and the FAA, and so we're all working together towards the same goal. I want to bring one other point to the discussion, Ian, and that's that's a shout-out, real quick shout-out to Jim McClay. He's our AOPA air traffic specialist, and Jim has real credentials on this operation, Ian. He's a former member of the NBAA air traffic management team, 
and he also is a member of the Air Traffic Control Association. So, and he's a former airline dispatcher, so he understands this from the inside out. And those are the those are the kind of allies that we need here to help bring some of that real world, you know, technology and real world scenarios to the FAA. Great. Okay, so hey, you mentioned this at the top of the show. You pitched a, a new source for unleaded fuel. This is something that we've never really talked about. Swift Fuels, UL94. We mentioned, of course, the GAMI fuel recently. Swift Fuels is another provider. This is a lower octane unleaded fuel, UL94, and it is now available at the Santa Clara County Airport in California. Yeah, Reed Hillview, otherwise known as. And so the UL94 is a, a direct replacement for for fuel in a lot of aircraft, but not all aircraft, but a lot of aircraft. I would say most of them, Ian, unless you're in a, a high power situation, like you and I did a quick run through of some of the uh, models that you could use this in, which we'll get to in a sec. But I think this is a great step in the right direction. Uh, another quick shout out to the California Pilots Association for helping bring that aboard and for getting that uh, swift fuel in there, that UL-94. So that's yet something new that we'll see going, going around the country. Now, Ian, you did a quick check on this. How many airports right now are using that kind of fuel? Yeah, so it's been out for a couple of years now, and I think it's at, I think I counted something like 22, maybe 23 public use airports around that. And then there's a bunch of private users who have bought, you know, private loads of, of Swift Fuel as well. So it's definitely getting out there. You do need an STC, and I, I think it's pretty cheap. It's what, 100 bucks, something like that? $100 and $3 for the, the mailing fee. So 103 there bucks, you go. and you're good to go. Yeah. But if you've got a 172, uh, you know, a Piper, lots of different Pipers, maybe an older Mooney, something like that, you can use this fuel. Obviously, being unleaded, it burns a little cleaner. You don't get the plug fouling necessarily. So it's, I mean, this is the way we're going. It's the way we have to go. It's the way we want to go. So this is a, a good step in the right direction. And it, it does address, there's been some concerns at Reed Hillview in, recently about leaded fuel. So this does address that. They've been asking for years to get this in, by the way which I find ironic, but it is nice to see some change there. Absolutely. And I want to direct our Hangar Talk listeners to swiftfuelsavgas.com. That's a website that you found for us, Ian. Swiftfuelsavgas.com altogether for some FAQs. And it shows can you know shows you if you can or can't use the Swift Fuels UL94 in your airplane. It's a pretty extensive list of airplanes and engines. And like you said, the the short body Moonies are, are up there. But, you know, I was surprised to also see some of the Cessna 182s with the older engine, the 0470 engine in there as well. And and some of the bigger Lycoming engines it, as well. But it just depends on your aircraft and on the compression, I guess, on that. The um, other thing is that I noticed that the fuel has been rolled out from California to Massachusetts and from Wisconsin to Florida. Yeah. So it will be available. Yeah. So definitely if it's at your home airport, you know. Looking at STC because it would be worth it to be able to run that fuel. All right, David, speaking of airplanes that can run the fuel, 172s, th this happened up in Canada. We got to talk about it before we leave this week. You know, we're all, I think, a little leery of, of drones in the airspace, especially by those people who are not necessarily trained to fly them. This was a case where I think the person was trained to fly it, but there, there was a collision, uh, 172 and a drone, and thankfully all ended well. It did all end well, and this is in Canada. How surprised would you be if you were on final to landing at about 500 feet and you felt something 
hit your airplane, you know, the pilots uh, thought that it might have been a bird, but it was not a bird. It was a drone. And as you mentioned, Ian, it was flown by a local police department, which yeah. they are only uh, were only authorized to fly to 400 feet. So uh, what Ouch. went wrong? We don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But it did a lot of damage to the to the nose bowl on that Cessna and that front cowling. But uh, you know, kudos to the pilots operating that Cessna and the 172, and also to the uh, to the Cessna itself. That's a pretty strong airplane. It took a direct hit. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, the concern is there's no chance that you're going to see one of these. I mean, it's like, you know, a DJI something that sort of size, you're never going to see that when you're flying. So it really the onus is completely on the drone operator. And, you know, they're cheap enough that it's like you've got kids who just want to go out and have fun. I mean, YouTube is littered with videos of people flying them, you know, up through the clouds and things like that. So it's it's surprising to see it from a supposedly, well, what we, we assume to be a trained operator. Well, it was, the lo- it was the local police department and they were authorized to fly, but but they might not have been authorized to fly that close to an airport because in Canada drones are banned within the three nautical miles of an un- uncontrolled airfield and they're restricted to 400 feet AGL without special authorization. Now, maybe they had special authorization. That's something we don't know as of yet. But this drone, it could have been a small one, but it could have been up to a 10 or 12 pounder because the local police department did have a press release back in 2016 that showed this drone in this uh, Arion Ranger. And also just wanted to, to give a quick shout out to our, our good friends at AvWeb because they had a, a story on this that we're referring to, although it was all over social media. I mean, that was the first thing that I saw the other day on Facebook. So, yeah. Yeah. Of course, I suppose the one I'd really worry about too, Global Hawk, that thing is a monster. Could you imagine? No, and I don't want to imagine. <laughs> How, I mean, there and then... Think about just anything that you hit in an aircraft. I mean, yeah. you're going even on even on final or short final, you're going 70, 65 in a one seventy two. Yeah. And the other thing is to say it stopped. I mean, that's uh, it's gonna it's gonna do some damage for sure. Yeah. All right. Hey, it would be really cool actually if you had an action cam on your airplane at the time. To I wish we had video of this event. I should say. Oh, Ian, I love I love your transition and your pitch <laughs> to Patrick. This is gonna be great. Yeah, so Patrick, like we said, has a lot of good stuff to say about how to uh, institute action cams in your flying, and and he comes from personal experience here, so a lot of good tips. So, Patrick, thanks so much for joining us. Really excited to talk to you about your background and then a bit about the company and what you guys offer. So thanks very much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. So you are one of the lucky few. You're an Alaska native. Is that right? So I know you live up there now and and do some flying. I live there. I'm not a native. I uh, moved up there in 2014. Oh, wow. Okay. So just a few years now, actually. Yep. Yep. Okay. I... uh, Grew up in Arkansas, started flying in Arkansas, kind of lived up, bounced all over the West Coast, and then kind of by happenstance, ended up in Alaska for a summer, flying for a company called K2, doing uh, tours around Denali, and never left. Fell in love with Alaska and have no intentions of leaving. It's a, it's a pilot's paradise. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's right. 
So you, obviously with K2, you're flying professionally, and then you've been doing that for a number of years now, I guess. I have. So being a professional pilot's always been my career. Started flight instructing when I was 18, and uh, that's always been my focus. I got into the in-flight cam through flight instructing, really. I was working in the late 2000s at Cessna in production flight test. Needed to video some stuff for uh, flight testing, and then really took it to, I also had a, uh, an aerobatic flight school where I was, I had a PITS S2B that I was doing upset recovery and aerobatic instruction in. And I was realizing that my students were not retaining as much as I wanted them to retain or as for what they were paying, obviously very expensive instruction. And there was one day I built, or I built a camera system for the airplane for that. And it didn't sink in exactly how beneficial it was at first. I was also doing, we called them thrill rides. So, you know, taking people for just a quick aerobatic flight, the camera system was on the plane to record that and, you know, sell them the video as well. But anyway, I was doing, teaching a student loops one day and to do a loop, you want to look at your wingtip, not straight forward. Cause when you're pointed straight up, you won't see anything. Mm-hmm. And I was telling him, you know, look at your wingtip, look at your wingtip. And he finally got really frustrated at me. He said, I am looking at my wingtip and I captured him on video looking straight ahead <laughs> And saying, I'm looking at the wingtip. <laughs> and when we got down and debriefed, it, it, and it wasn't like he was trying to be difficult or anything like that. I mean, he was obviously paying me to learn. Right. But it, it sunk in that, oh my gosh, I, I, I need to look at the wingtip. I wasn't. And it, the cockpit is the worst classroom. It's hot. It's cramped. All of us are, are a little more stressed than we are sitting here on a couch watching a TV. So we can take that video and debrief a flight lesson and retain so much more than we can if we just do the traditional go fly flight instructor might take notes and debrief afterwards maybe not just maybe they do it on the fly so that really clicked to me that hey this is something that we need in the flight instruction industry we need to start recording flights and doing video debriefs that was 2010 that probably that event probably happened in 2009 I started the business in 2010 and then took the idea to Sporties and they they liked it, which really kind of launched the business. We started selling through them and selling on our website. And that was, we were taking it at that time, a uh, GoPro wasn't as nearly as prominent. There was another camera called Contour and we were taking that camera apart and, and adding a comm circuit to it. So we were tying it in so that you could listen to the Everything you hear in your headset, the camera would capture. It wouldn't just capture ambient audio engine noise, which is fairly worthless. So say it's the other half of the story. You need to hear what you're hearing in your headset. And that's still really the meat and potatoes of our business. That's, that's one of the main things we do is allow pilots to hear everything they hear in their headset. Even though the contour camera is long gone, hasn't been in production for, for nine years, but we still make cables for GoPro and iPhone or smartphones. Any, we try to make it for any smartphone, digital audio recorder. So we, that is one of the core things we do is, is capture that audio because it does tell the other half of the story. Especially for instruction, I would imagine. Absolutely. You know, sometimes I don't want, necessarily want to be recorded as the instructor yeah. <laughs> or the student, but it does really tell that other half of the story. It's really hard to go back and watch your video without that and retain the same amount of information. So that's always been kind of my driving principle is, hey, let's let's make flight instruction more efficient, more economical, and, and better quality. 
ultimately making us safer pilots. So that, that's interesting because, you know, obviously I, I think the, the way a lot of people know POV cams these days, and I would assume a lot of your customers are, are people who are shooting, you know, their hobby, right? It's like they've put it on their Bonanza or whatever they're flying and they, they may go back and watch it. They may not, but it's, you know, it's kind of fun and they see people doing it on YouTube. And surprisingly, it doesn't seem to have found, even though there's a lot of utility, it doesn't seem to have found as much of a foothold in flight training. So why do you think that is? It adds work. There's no question. It's getting, the technology is getting a lot better to where it's a lot easier to do. However, it definitely adds more workload to the flight instructor. You know, one of the things, these cameras are another piece of equipment you have to learn how to use. They're not hard to use, but you have to get acquainted with the camera. So a lot of people I see, they'll buy a camera, they'll buy our stuff, and then they'll... (laughs) It's not exactly flight instruction, but then they'll call me and go, I just went on this once in a lifetime flight and the camera didn't work and we'll start talking and it'll be something like they didn't charge the battery. Yeah. They didn't turn it on. Have an SD card. Yeah. (laughs) And so I always tell people, you know, if you're going to invest in this, take the time to get acquainted with the camera before you go on that once in a lifetime adventure. And it's not, it's not necessarily a safety issue, but it's like, would you hop in your airplane that once in a lifetime adventure, having never read the POH. So there's a learning curve to using the cameras. And it, it is it does have more of a foothold in the flight training industry, I think, than it did, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But there's a lot of room for, for more use. COVID has actually shown us some more applications for it in flight checking. The FAA is now using them for certain line checks, authorizing different operators to video a line check. So uh, that's been been kind of neat to see. It makes perfect sense. And so they've been doing stuff like that. But that's definitely, we, we support all the uh, the recreational video and, and YouTube. We love all that stuff. But I, our, our focus will always be, or our, our underlying mission will always be flight training and, and helping make flight training more efficient. So in terms of usefulness, I mean, obviously you said it, it adds a little bit of work for the instructor, and but... You know, part of that, I think, is that when you're done with a flight, you've got this hour of video, whatever it is, hour, 20 minutes. It's not terribly efficient then to just shoot it over to the student and say, watch it or, you know, watch this one little piece. So what tips do you give folks to package it in such a way that it's more useful for the student as a debrief tool? So GoPro actually has some technology that makes that a lot easier. They have a highlight feature, so you can actually tag video at certain points you want to watch. And, you know, actually watching it, having an entire hour and 20 minute flight that's has voice notes on it. So the you're plugged in with our audio cable and talking, you can scrub through and find out, okay, you know, I want to watch my steep turns again. I kind of messed those up. So you can, you can find the steep turns pretty quickly and then watch them over and over and over. So what I do is recommend that students either, I either give them or recommend they buy a couple SD cards. And then when we go flying, we put their SD card in the camera. When we're done, we pop it out. With the newer GoPros, you can easily watch on your iPad. You can just wirelessly link to the iPad, scrub through the video, watch the video right there. There are several apps out there that allow you to actually take text notes on the video. It's fairly easy to rewatch that video now and and figure out what it is your instructor wants you to do. Usually self-critique is as good as the... uh, the instructor's comments in a lot of situations, because you'll be surprised how much you can see that you didn't see when you were flying the airplane. 
Yeah, and you're not emotionally as tied to it as you were in that moment. And exactly. Yeah, yeah I can, you can sort of step back and take that higher end look. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you touched on something that, you know, you get calls from people who say, oh, what, you know, I went to go take this video and this happened. And so I, I was thinking before we chatted that it's like, you know, selling gear is probably at most 50% of what you do. The other 50% is probably giving advice to people. They'll call and ask questions and how do I do this or how do I do that? So I'm curious, what is the what is the one question that you just get over and over and over again? Usually it's how do I plug in my camera and capture audio? And they, or they'll say, I have a Bose A20 and I want to capture audio. And the uh, first, that's what we do. That's the question we love. We can work with any headset out there and we can plug into any port in the airplane. That's probably one of the number one is how do I capture this audio? So we talked through that. How do I mount a camera is the next one. We, we have solutions for that. And then how do I get rid of the propeller? Because the propeller in a shot through an action camera leaves these weird artifacts. I call it propeller distortion. And we make a, a filter for getting rid of that artifacting in almost all conditions. It's a function of light. So the more light, the darker the filter we need. So we try to gauge the filter to work in, I say, 90% of your VFR conditions. Occasionally you'll see a little propeller in it, but it definitely reduces it. Kind of those three things are the main things we we hear. And we we also make a kit that encompasses all three of those things, our audio cable, uh, a way to mount the camera, and a way to get rid of the propeller distortion or artifacting. We throw that, we call that our cockpit kit. So that's kind of a one, one-stop shop for here's what you need to go record video in your airplane. One of the problems with the typical action camera suction cup is that as we climb the volume of air inside the suction cup changes and there's no good way to increase that suction. So they usually pop off about eight to 10,000 feet. Not a huge deal. You can reach up and put it back on. Our suction cup is a vacuum style suction cup. So it has a vacuum pump on it. So you can pump it up as you climb and it'll stay stuck to the window. It also has a little bit longer arm. We have a stainless steel articulating arm that allows you to really get that angle you want. It's seven inches long, so you can point the camera any direction, put it on the side window and still get it pointed the direction you want. It's real easy. It has one pivot point and one tightening point. So you can change the angle of the camera quickly and easily with, with that. So Having done this for, for a decade, you know, I have spent a lot of time and that's what we, we love doing as well as supporting our customers. So we, we built those kits with that in mind. When you call us, you'll get a hold of a pilot. You're going to talk to myself or, or Courtney, my partner, and both of us are pilots. Both of us film all the time. We want to stay a small company. We want to know our customers. We want to take care of our customers. We feel pretty fortunate that we get to talk about airplanes all day, every day. So we encourage people to call, even if you're not ready to buy anything, just call, talk about flying. We're happy to happy to give advice, tell you what we've been doing, tell you about our adventures in Alaska and what we're doing next and love to hear about what you're doing next too. Cool. So I'm curious, it's hard I, now that you're in the business of helping people capture better video. It's got to be hard when you go on YouTube and you you see people's videos and you think, man, if they just had this technique or this piece of equipment, it would seriously increase the quality of their videos. So what do you think 
What are some common mistakes that you see people making that they can really easily fix? <laughs> Mounting the camera is one of the things that I've seen go wrong that I really like to, that I see could potentially be a safety issue. So I like to see people mount their cameras properly. We're not the only company making proper camera mounts, but they're sticky mounts and suction cups outside airplanes. Sticky mounts occasionally work if you are very aware of what you're doing and how you're adhering it to the airplane. I don't want to say they never work. Suction cups are just a really bad idea all the time because that whole principle of the volume of air changing as we climb and descend makes the suction cup not, you know, in a bag of chips, you take off at sea level, you climb up to 5,000 feet, and now it's twice the size. Well, that air inside that suction cup is doing the exact same thing, and it will just pop off. And now you've got a camera falling to earth, and we can all imagine how that could go poorly. So I, I really, that's one of the big mistakes I see is I see some camera mounts that I'm just like, oh my gosh, no, please don't fall off and, and cause problems for the entire industry or hurt someone. But people come up with, you know, I'm, I'm always watching YouTube and also being like, wow, I never thought of doing it that way. That's really cool. That's a neat way to, to capture that. So there are some really innovative and, and creative filmmakers out there, or video makers, if you will, on YouTube doing some neat stuff. So we're, we're here to support that as well. And uh, yeah, we do a lot of adventure flying ourselves. We, uh, that's, that's kind of our passion is getting out and flying in the backcountry and camping and going to neat places. Very cool. What about, you know, I, I know this is something people talk about that there's not necessarily a clear answer for. So I'm curious what your take on it is. Uh, what about the legality of, of external mounts? I, some people are a little concerned about that. Yeah, we actually have a memo from the FAA dated in 2014. And then I have a white paper that I wrote. I'm an ANPIA myself. It is a little gray. I like to think it's a little more black and white after the memo, but there is a, uh, it's a minor alteration. So I can, I won't bore you with the whole logic as to how we came to that, but we came to it. And then the FAA did write a memo saying it's a minor alteration. So what that means in a nutshell is that any A&P that's comfortable with the installation can sign it off as a minor alteration. It's one logbook entry two sentences. I spell out a sample entry in, in the white paper. You can download that from our website on the, it's on the product page for the in-flight cam exterior ball head mount. It says AMP's guide to camera mounting. And that that's it. So as long as the AMP is comfortable with it, then you're, uh, you're good to go. It should be, you know, 30 minutes of labor to install one of our mounts on an airplane and sign it off. It's going to take as long to sign the paperwork because it is going to to, to mount the camera. Okay. And I guess the last question is, uh, I'm sure you get calls, you know, people are looking at Garmin verbs and GoPros and 360 cams and saying like, geez, how do I, how do I pick one of these? And I know you're, you guys are camera agnostic, but what's your, what's your general advice for, you know, somebody's starting at this from the beginning, they see all these different choices. Where do you, where do you kind of point them? So we lean heavily towards GoPro and we, we are, like you said, camera agnostic. We have no ties to any of the camera companies out there. Garmin seems to have exited the camera business several years ago. They still have the Verb Ultra 30, but they haven't really, they're a few years behind on technology and they haven't made any effort to upgrade that technology. So I don't, I'm getting, I don't think they're going to, I don't know for certain. GoPro tends to lead the industry. There are others out there that are decent. The DJI, Osmo Action, the Insta360 cameras. Those are all good options. 
the reason why we lean to, towards GoPro is they just seem to to do a good job. They seem to dominate the market. It's kind of like, you know, we we definitely let respect everyone's choice to pick whatever they want to pick, but they have the best user interface, they have the best support, and they have the best technology. And since the GoPro Hero 7 Black came out, their anti-vibration technology has been really good. They developed their own chip for the camera themselves, and the ability to, to stabilize the video has been game-changing. And it just gets better all the way up to the Hero 9. I really think the Hero 9 is the... Uh, it's the best action camera we've ever seen. It's got a decent battery life and I've mounted it on the tail boom of a helicopter on the tail boom of an R44, which everyone knows vibrates a lot and the video is smooth. Wow. It's like having your camera on a gyro stabilizer with the Hero 9 Black or the 360 cameras too. And those make for some neat video. It's a little more advanced post edit, but uh, you can create some really cool stuff with a GoPro 360 Max camera. Cool. So we, we tend to lean there. That's where we tend to support it. We kind of, we did make the decision that we can't be experts on every camera out there when people call to support. So we chose the GoPro. We tend to know how to work the GoPro the best. And we, we have to defer and say, Hey, uh, we've never even touched that camera ourselves. We know it'll work with our mounts based on its specs, but it's, it's up to you to learn how to use it. Okay, cool. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, David, I'm impressed that you know, Patrick wasn't a guy looking for a buck and, you know, he came to this saying, oh, there's an opportunity. It's like, no, he, he wanted to solve a problem that he had. And, and I think he's done that really well. They have some great products. They have excellent products. I use several of them and, you know, it's key for us to be able to listen as well as see what's going on. And so their, the interface that they've rigged up, you know, to get audio, I think is, is, you know, the leading edge as well as a lot of the gear. I mean, it is high-tech, heavy-duty, the real McCoy stuff. It is, it is not flimsy. It is a stout, stout, stout. And, and I think that we need to rely on that, that kind of technology. And I know that he'll be having more innovations in the future. Cool. All right, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twomley. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk and wherever you get your podcast, whether it's via Apple or Google. All right, we'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangertalk from AOPA, your freedom to fly. <laughs>